Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, as we continue to make our way through this book. Of course, we're getting toward the end of the book of Romans, and we come to yet another very interesting text from the Apostle Paul. As I said to you last week, you know, you think you're going to make your way through Romans 9, 10, 11, and it's like, yes, I made it through this most difficult passage of Scripture. And then you just keep going on, and so you come today to Romans chapters 14 and 15, for example, and Paul is having a conversation about weaker and stronger brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, there's not one of us that's seated in the context of this room that in any measurable way likes to think of ourselves as being the weaker brother, right? We all think that we are the stronger brother or sister regardless of the issue. But Paul, in this text of Scripture, knowing the differences among the people of God makes a very strong plea for unity. Isn't it interesting as we reflect on the text of Scripture throughout the New Testament, the number of times that the Apostle Paul is having to give a plea for unity. It seems to me that the more natural occurrence in the human heart is an occurrence towards division. Division seems to occur more naturally in some ways. It's easy to divide for a number of reasons. For example, for the large majority of us, we have eyesight. And just through eyesight, think of the number of divisions that are created among people that occurred just from eyesight. Just from eyesight. We can divide ourselves between men and women. Just by eyesight, we can divide ourselves between the good-looking men that have bald heads and the rest of you that God has graced with hair. Right? That, just, that occurs by eyesight, right? Nobody has to teach us that. Nobody has to train us in that manner. We just naturally see it. We can divide ourselves along racial divisions just simply by eyesight. Paul knows the difficulty of division. He's written a letter, for example, to the church at Corinth, and at the very beginning of that book in Corinth, he's having to make a plea to the body of Christ that they not divide themselves among the preachers that they like. Don't allow division to take place because you like to listen to this preacher, and the person sitting over here would prefer to hear the other preacher speak. We divide along hearing. For the majority of the book of Romans, and even into, for example, the book of Ephesians, 
The division that is primary in these two texts or scriptures seem to be a division along ethnic lines. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. And there are customs that penetrate both of those ethnicities, and it is just simply the temptation of the human heart for us to gather with those that we perceive to be most like us. But the plea of the Apostle Paul, of the text of Scripture, is that we not highlight our differences, but we highlight our common confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul is not erasing or attempting to erase that there are indeed differences that occur among humans. Just take a look around this room just for a second this morning. There are differences, and that's okay. That's great. It's wonderful. Let's celebrate. Whether in Romans or in Galatians or in Ephesians or in the book of Acts or in 1 Corinthians or name your text, the word of God is continually calling the people of God to be unified for in our unity is a communication of the unity that exists among the Godhead, among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That unity is a unity that is so completely, totally separate from anything that we see in the context of the cultures in which we live. That unity is seen as an expression of the gospel itself. And so Paul fights. He fights for the unity in the body of Christ. He fights for that which in some ways runs contrary to our human nature. Look how he does it here in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. He reminds us. Believers, that's you and me, people who have been redeemed by Christ, believers are to extend Christian charity, or we might say Christian hospitality. Believers are to extend Christian hospitality toward other believers with whom we disagree on non-essentials. Believers are to extend Christian charity or hospitality toward believers whom we disagree on non-essentials. There are four imperatives in this text of Scripture. The controlling imperative occurs right here in the very beginning in verse 14. Verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is 
weak in faith, what are you to do with that one? Welcome him. Receive him. Extend hospitality. Extend Christian charity toward that one who is weak in faith, but do not quarrel over opinions. Chapter 14, for sure, moves us in to a different conversation than that which Paul has been dealing with in chapter 12, verses 3, through the end of chapter 14, and and through chapter 13. And you can even see it in your English Bibles. Our Bibles begin, as for. Paul begins to move into a different communication, yet still an outflow of what it means for believers to live in this world as those who have been transformed by the gospels, by the gospel, and those who are regularly, daily, having their minds conformed to the mind of Christ. Remember much of what he's talked about in the context of Romans chapter 12. As believers, we are to pursue one another with great affection, with great love, with brotherly love. As believers, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And yet, there still exists this temptation among us to divide ourselves in these ways, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so Paul says, we must welcome one another. Now Paul in just a few moments is going to give us the foundation for why he is saying for believers that we should extend Christian charity or Christian hospitality toward one another. But here in verse 1, he's reminding us that this is a command from God. This is something that we must do. We must welcome one another. There is no room in the body of Christ for a lack of Christian charity. Brothers and sisters, we have been as sinners received and welcomed by God. And if God can receive or welcome any one of us, can you please tell me who is the person that you cannot welcome or receive? First church I was going to pastor was a church that had been known for great division. They had been, they'd been without a pastor for right at, right at 30 years and I was a young 21-year-old guy and thought, man, Eric and I were about to get married. I've got to pay the bill somehow. Lord, I'll pastor any church. I don't care what type of church it is. Just place me there, right? And I went to this little bitty rural country church, and the director of missions for that area had been the interim of that church, and he was really concerned about a young man going to this church knowing her history, for she had eaten up and spit out every pastor in the last 10 to 15 15 years. And I'll never forget 
that godly man, E.J. Bradshaw, meeting with me in a gas station parking lot. You know that gas station that's the post office, the grocery store, and the fried chicken place, right? That gas station. And I remember one of the things Brother E.J. Bradshaw saying to me, young man, it will be impossible for you to remain angry at people for whom you are praying. What was he acknowledging to me? Along life's path, we're going to have controversy, whether in the context of the home, in the context of work, in the context of neighbors, or in the context of the body of Christ. But he's saying it's impossible to remain angry at people to whom you are extending Christian charity and Christian hospitality. This is to be a mark of those whose lives have been redeemed by the person of Christ. And Brother E.J. Bradshaw would go on to say to me, young man, even Jesus had Judas. Those people who tend to function as a Judas in our life. We tend to disregard them. We tend to build up disregard and animosity and hatred. Jesus set the paradigm for you and me for how we are to respond to those with whom we have disagreements. And Paul is calling us in the context of the body of Christ, the church at Rome, that we are to extend Christian charity and hospitality toward all people. And notice in this text, particularly to whom? Those who are weak in faith. Now, as we think about faith, we tend to think of faith in two primary categories. We think of faith in terms of salvific faith and sanctifying faith, if you will. Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is not speaking of salvific faith. He's not talking about faith that brings us to relationship, right relationship with Christ. In that context, that same measure of faith in Christ saves every one of us. We don't measure that faith through court jars. But when it comes to sanctifying faith, we all understand that at moments in our lives, there are times in which we are weaker in faith and stronger in faith. In fact, as we think about that on a line of progressive sanctification, I think all of us in humility would have to acknowledge that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, when you came to faith in Christ, you were much weaker in faith at that moment than you are now. We even see it in the context of, of the church from time to time. We'll say things like, wow, it took a lot of faith to overcome that situation. Now think of people who have experienced tragedy, for example. And this church is not without the examples of people who have experienced deep tragedy. And in the moment of that deep tragedy, that brother or sister responds with such incredible hope. 
And we say, that took a lot of faith. Paul already in chapter 12 has been speaking of the various ways in which we exercise the gifts that God has has given to to each one of us. And he says that we are to exercise, notice in chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. There's an indication as we think about faith in a sanctifying way that at moments there are some of us who are weak in that faith and there are moments when some of us are strong in that faith. Think of it in terms of the book of James. James is writing to a group of people who are experiencing intense persecution. Intense persecution. And in James chapter 5, James writes and says, for the one who is sick, an indication there is the one who is sick in faith, the one who is weak in faith, let him call on the elders of the church that they might anoint him and pray for the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The indication is that when we face persecution, There is a temptation on behalf of those who are weak in faith to want to abandon the faith, to want to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. And James is calling for those who are stronger in the faith to come around those who are weaker in the faith and encourage them. So there is no surprise to us that in the context of the body of Christ, There are people who are weak in faith, and there are people who are strong in faith, and let's just confess with one another, there are moments in which all of us are moving in and out of weakness of faith and strongness of faith. So in this case, Paul is specifically mentioning those who are weak in faith. He is going to come back in this uh, tax in chapter 14 and 15 and specifically mention those who are strong in faith, but here he is mentioning those who are weak in faith. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome, receive. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't make that plea for the one who is strong in faith? He makes it for the one who is weak in faith, for the temptation whether inside the church or outside the church, is for us to disregard, to cast off, to push to the side the weaker. It's a temptation for those who are strong in faith to look upon those who are weak in faith and not encourage that brother or that sister or not pull them along, to disregard them, to ignore them. And Paul is saying, no, you've got it wrong. The one who is weak in faith, pursue them. Go after them. Encourage them. Welcome them. Receive them with Christian charity. Extend Christian hospitality. But whatever you do, look at the end of verse one, do not quarrel over what? 
opinions. Do not quarrel over opinions. Don't conflate what Paul is saying here, opinions, with clear articulations of do's and don'ts from the text of Scripture. For example, back in chapter 12, Paul tells us some very specific things that we must be doing as believers in Christ. We must, for example, love one another. It's not a matter of opinion. You can't say, well, pastor, I just have to be honest. In this situation, I just do not believe that I have to love brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. It's just my opinion that I don't really have to invite them over to my house and, and pray with them. It's just my opinion that I don't have to work through difficulty with another brother or sister. No, no, we're not talking about that being opinion. That's fine to look at somebody and say, well, God bless you, but friend, you're wrong. And not only are you wrong, it is sinful for you not to love another brother or sister, right? But can't we all agree that in this broad, large text of Scripture, we come to a lot of opinions. We have a lot of ways that we understand that we should live out our Christian life. And we're going to touch on those here in just a few moments. So Paul is saying to us that we must recognize in the context of the church that there are certain things that we should put in the category of opinion And in those things that are in the category of opinion, we shouldn't be duking it out with one another. We must be working diligently to see how we might be able to extend Christian charity. What are those issues? It's very clear in the book of Romans, and here in chapters 14 and 15, that the issue is in some ways different from the issue Paul dealt with, for example, in uh, the book of Corinthians, and whether the Christian believers should eat meat that is sacrificed to animals. Now, there is a conversation here on dietary laws, but it seems, and you're not going to be surprised, that the difference here in the book of Romans is one related to a Jewish understanding of the practice of Christianity and, if you will, a Gentile expression of how we are to practice Christianity. Of course, you will remember as you read through the narrative of the book of Acts, as the gospel is going forth, where is Paul going to proclaim this gospel message? 
He's going directly to the synagogues, right? He's going directly to the heartbeat of these Jewish communities, and he's preaching Christ. We know from Paul's ministry, from his mission trips, we know from church history that the early church had its birth among those Jewish synagogues. These were Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in verses 2 through 4, there is a concern as it relates to dietary regulations. Look what it says in verses 2 through 4. One person believes he may eat anything. That one person is the stronger believer. The one who is stronger in faith. That person believes that he or she may eat absolutely anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now we're going to find our second imperative, verse 3. Let not the one who eats, that is the one who eats everything, that is the stronger brother, let not the stronger brother or sister do what? Despise. Disregard. Hate, if you will, the one who abstains and only eats vegetables. And let not the one who abstains, that is the weaker brother, cast judgment against the stronger brother on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul, in this passage of Scripture in verses 2 through 4, is talking about that first issue that divides the church at Rome, these dietary restrictions. Uh, These are dietary restrictions that the Jewish believers are holding on to. They understand that these are appropriate ways for them to express their faith and their hope in Christ. What category does Paul put that conversation in? Sin or opinion? Are some of you unsure this morning? Opinion. Tell your neighbor, opinion. Paul puts this in the category of opinion. Now it's interesting. Does Paul take up an approach as to what, in this case, is right or wrong? No. What does he say to the people who are exercising different opinions as it relates to dietary laws? Do for that person what God has done for you. Welcome him. Friends, the foundation of Christian charity and hospitality is the life of the Lord Jesus himself. The foundation. We as believers aren't nice to people just because we want to be nice to people. Being nice to people might get you a raise at work. It might do right the opposite. It might cause the boss to trample on top of you. 
Being nice to your neighbor might work in the event that you run over his fence while backing down the road and he says, don't worry about it. Those are good virtues to have. But as believers, we don't just exercise that virtue just because it's a good virtue to have. No, friends. We exercise the virtue of kindness or charity or Christian hospitality because Christ has extended that same measure toward you and me. How can we not welcome one whom God has welcomed? And this is Paul's whole point in verse 4. Paul is saying in verse 4, as it relates to this process of sanctification, or we might say it more specifically, as it relates to an idea of sincerity. We love to make heart judgments, do we not? We love to make judgments about how really sincere someone's faith is or is not. By the way, let's just be honest in the context of the church, that's how oftentimes we end up dividing ourselves. Paul is saying, when it comes to the situation of sincerity, make sure you understand who God is and who God is not. And you and I are not God. Stop making heart judgments or sincerity judgments against another brother or sister. Now you might suppose, aha, I knew we shouldn't be practicing church discipline in the life of the church because this text says that we should not be judging anybody. Paul is not making a statement here as it relates to salvific judgment, he's making a statement as it relates to sincerity or sanctification. God, I promise you, when we stand before him, will make the final judgment about how really sincere or insincere Lewis was in the exercise of faith. Paul is not saying that the church does not bear responsibility in judgment. Think back, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5. In fact, he casts judgment on the church at Corinth because they are not making judgment statements against one who is acting as an unbeliever. Remember what I said about this text. This is not a text that is speaking about judgment of sin or faith as it relates to salvific faith, it's a statement of faith as it relates to sanctifying faith. How we are progressing along this journey of becoming more like Christ. And Paul is saying on that journey, be careful that you aren't placing yourself in the position of Christ and making sincerity judgments against another's heart. So for example, our brother Chris back here in the sound booth that's running the cameras for us, he coached in upward basketball last year, and he's not coaching in upward basketball this year. 
And I have made a sincerity judgment against him that he is indeed weak in faith. And I know that you all agree with me that he should coach upward basketball, right? Would y'all tell Chris back there, Chris, you should coach upward basketball. You get my point? See, we like to make a sincerity judgment. So-and-so's doing X, Y, and Z, or they're not doing X, Y, and Z. They're just not loving Jesus like they ought. Not only do we make judgments in relationship to dietary laws, look what Paul says now in verses uh, 5 and 6. Be careful about these calendrical observations. Be careful about how we judge based off of the calendar of what one should be doing or not doing. One person esteems a day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So Paul speaks of the weaker brother first. The weaker brother esteems certain holidays, certain Jewish uh, festivals to be better than another, while the mature person in faith understands that Christ himself has fulfilled the law, therefore we're not under obligation to practice any of these festival days, and that person esteems every day as equally a gift from God. End of verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind the fourth imperative of this text be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of whom? The Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Every now and then, even in the context of Woodlawn, I'll hear somebody say something to me about, for example, the Christmas decorations. Pastor, I don't think we should be putting up those Christmas trees because those Christmas trees are birthed in pagan idolatry. Well, maybe so. but we're not worshiping the Christmas trees or making sacrifices to them in the context of a Christian church. Is it wrong for Christian believers, for example, to celebrate Christmas? I propose to you that it is never wrong for the church to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. But suppose one person in the context of Woodlawn thinks that we shouldn't decorate for Christmas and another person thinks that every ounce of the sanctuary ought to have some type of Christmas decoration put on them. What category do we put those things? Sin or opinion? Opinion. Oh, here's a better one for you. What color the carpet ought to be? Sin or opinion? Yeah. What is Paul's overarching disposition as he reflects on holidays, on days. See, Paul strikes at the very heart. 
You know what he's saying about both of these people? Both of these groups are operating with a pure heart. They are both operating, notice what he says, as people who are giving thanks to God. And thus Paul reminds us that the most important observation, and it's an observation that, friends, is even deceitful for us as individuals, what is my heart's disposition toward Christ. One of the primary ways that oftentimes we see these type of conversations come out in the context of a local church is, for example, through dress. For some of us, we think, for example, in regard to ladies, that ladies, you should wear clothing that covers from here to here. And there are people that are passionate about it. And then we've got people that are, have opinions about that dress that are anywhere in between from here to here to here, right? But when Paul has a conversation about ladies in dress, what is the heart of the matter? What is he concerned most about? Now, I'm not saying to you that it's not important how we dress. Don't walk away from here saying, Pastor Lewis said we can dress however we want to. Paul's overarching point was a matter of the heart. See, friends, if you spend far more time concerned about what you're wearing so that what you're wearing in any measurable way is going to accentuate your beauty or your body... Paul says it's sinful. Don't do it. Why? It's a heart disposition. Is your heart more disposed in bringing glory to God, or is your heart more disposed in bringing glory to yourself? Now, sometimes I think I can judge that. But you know what Paul's saying? Be careful. Don't judge someone's sincerity. Why? Because as believers, in these issues that are matter of opinion, Paul is saying that both are operating from a desire to honor the Lord and give thanks. Would you reflect on your life for just a few moments? Maybe in specific ways. Maybe this morning, even in a conversation on how you dress, or how you think, or how you act. Are you doing those things for the purpose of honoring and glorifying God? Are you doing that today because you want to give thanks to God? Christmas is just right around the corner. Are you anxious for Christmas to come so that you can outdo the in-laws and giving gifts to the grandkids? 
Or are you more concerned that Christmas is coming and it's a wonderful opportunity for you to speak of the incarnation of Christ with the grandkids? We must, verse 1, extend Christian charity and hospitality to all people. Now Paul tells us why in verses 7 through 12. Why must our heart's disposition be this way toward other brothers and sisters in Christ? First, notice verses 7 and 9. Christ is Lord over all. Friends, live your lives with a right view of the supremacy of Christ's reign. Look what he says, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Paul is saying our entire lives are to be found in the person of Christ. For none of us lives to ourselves, or none of us dies to ourselves, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, to whom do we belong? We are the Lord's. Now Paul's going to give us the reason for verses 7 and 8 here in verse 9. For to this end... Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. See, friends, how we relate to one another in the body of Christ, Paul says, is a loud, large communication of exactly what we believe about the gospel. It is very hard for you and me to convince anybody that we love Jesus when we don't rightly love the people of God. It's really hard for you to convince anybody that you have a right perception of who Christ is when you don't have the right perception of who the body of Christ is. See, Jesus really does change everything about who we are. We live in this way because we recognize Christ is Lord of all things. There is not one ounce of this creation of which he doesn't exercise his lordship. And then notice what Paul says in verses 10, 11, and 12. Why do we welcome all people? Why do we extend Christian charity and hospitality toward all people? Because God is judge. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ as it is written. And now you see this text of scripture that we read early in our worship service from Isaiah 45. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. 
Verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We live in this way toward one another. Rightly understanding the categories of sin and opinion. Because we know we are not the ultimate judge. God is. See, friends, each of us one day are going to stand before a holy, righteous God. And you, might can fool everybody seated in this building concerning your piety, concerning your sincerity. You might have every one of us fooled because you dress the part, you play the part, you act the part, you, you in many ways live the part. But notice there's a word of judgment here. Be careful. One day we are going to stand before the right judge, but there's also a warning for those who are weak in faith. Make sure that your weakness of faith is indeed a weakness of faith and not a lack of faith. Because see, one day you're going to stand before God. And if your weakness of faith was really a lack of faith, then you're going to spend an eternity separated from a holy, loving, righteous, good God. So what does this text compel of us as brothers and sisters in the context of the body of Christ? First, this text compels you and me to be watchful of our judgmental attitudes. Be watchful, be careful of our judgmental attitudes. Paul knew a little bit about judgmental attitudes, did he not? He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, listen to these words. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For, I'm not, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul knew a little bit about judgment. In fact, the entirety of the book of 2 Corinthians in large measure, is Paul writing a defense of the false accusations from these super apostles against Paul's ministry. They stood in judgment against Paul's ministry for he wasn't carrying it out as they supposed. He wasn't following some of these ceremonial laws that they supposed he should be following. Paul says as believers in Christ, we should be exceedingly careful about the judgments that we pass against other brothers and sisters in Christ. Particularly those categories in which we put things that are called opinions. Be careful. Ultimately, Paul's plea in this, con- in this text of Scripture 
The second major application of this passage of scripture that Paul would have for the church at Rome and for you and me is a call for Christian unity. That we might seek the unity of the body of Christ. It's hard to seek the unity of the body of Christ when my thinking about other brothers and sisters is out of a line from what God has called us to. Woodlawn, why don't we seek to pledge ourselves to think in unity rather than judgment and see how God drastically increases the affection of the people of God for one another? Paul had something to say about this unity in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to these words from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13, 14, and 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but... If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In what measurable ways, friends, are you pursuing the unity of the body of Christ at Woodlawn? Our unity is founded And the fact that God himself has extended to you and me grace and mercy, he's welcomed us. How can we not welcome one another? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that you have extended to us. We thank you, God, that you know our human hearts. You know the weaknesses of our human hearts. You know the temptations of our human hearts. God, you know in your sovereign wisdom so much of our temptation would be given towards sowing seeds of division. And yet, God, you've warned us. You've challenged us. You've called us. So God, I pray this morning that in each of our hearts you would bring about a sense of conviction in those areas where we cast judgment on opinions and we ought not. And Lord, we ask that you would help us corporately, to pursue unity. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on the preaching of God's word? In what ways are you extending extending Christian charity and hospitality? How is that evidenced in your life? When that work of charity and hospitality is increased in our hearts and lives, 
That's a temptation towards disunity, towards judgment. Friend, don't think only of it in the context of the gathering of the people of God here at Woodlawn. Think about it in terms of your own family life, your marriage, your relationship with your children. Think of it in relationship to to those relationships at work. Would you ask God now to show you areas, ways for you to pursue unity? Friend, maybe that unity for you needs to be a conversation after church today. Perhaps you need to pick the phone up or write a letter to another brother and sister and say, I'm sorry. Seek forgiveness. Perhaps it's a conversation with a spouse after church today. Or a co-worker. Or perhaps, friend, you're here today and you realize that it's impossible for you to be welcoming to others. For you have not been welcomed into the kingdom of God. For you have rejected Christ's call. And today, God by his word has convicted you of your need to trust in Christ. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Christ today? We're going to stand in just a few moments, and as we stand, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ as we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. We would be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Of course, friend, please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of people in this room that believe in the person of Christ and and would be delighted to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, Perhaps you'd like for Pastor Travis or I just to pray with you that the truths of this text indeed might resonate in your heart. That indeed you might be a person who pursues unity in the body of Christ. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, May our responses be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.